we sang a song at the beginning or in the song service, and I happened to really like the song. But it occurred to me in a way that it never has how we try to uh, make things better than they really are and over-spiritualize things. The song says Moses led God's children. Forty years he led them through the storms and through the night. Though they said, let's turn back, Moses said, keep going. Canaan land is just in sight. Now, that is our perspective of God's gloriously leading these people through the... You know how he led them? This is the message, and thank you for that song because it tied in so well, and let's don't stop singing it. I like it. But we need to realize this. How did God lead them? Did he lead them to some wonderful path, and they arrived at this um, paradise, utopia on earth? What happened? They wandered around in circles in the wilderness and the desert, and they all died. That's how God led them. So that song's upbeat, it's peppy, it's exciting. There was nothing exciting. In fact, listen to what Scripture says about them, and this is just as a backdrop for the message. Psalm 78, verse 32 and 33. For all this they sinned still, and they believed not for God's wondrous works. In other words, they were faithless, and their greatest sin was being faithless. Therefore, their days did God consume in vanity and their years in trouble. So every time we sing that song from now on, and the upbeat, and yes, God's lead, sometimes God's very purpose is to consume the days in vanity of somebody who won't serve Him. Because He's waiting for somebody who will. Now we have a choice whether to be people who have faith or people who don't. And even that choice must be girded by the Holy Spirit and the strength to have faith comes from God. You try being faithful on your own. Let me know how it goes. It's not possible. One more backdrop verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, I'll read verse 7 through 10. Paul is writing, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. Now we have a culture, and a religious culture, but especially this Western culture we're in, that teaches us we're all supposed to be strong all the time. And some people are more susceptible to that than others. Here's what my message is about today, what God has put on my heart that He will restore the wasted years. We're going to go to Joel. I'm going to read you the text, and then we'll do some background. Joel, chapter 2. If you're trying to find it, it's, it's near the end of the Old Testament. 
right before uh, Amos. It's in the little small prophet area. Hosea and Amos are on either side. Joel chapter 2. I want you to get there so you can read and mark it and read it for later. Because there's some real beauty. Here's the the text on my heart. Joel chapter 2 verse 25. God is speaking through his prophet. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. The canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God because he's dealt wondrously with you. And my people will never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered or saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. And the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. What are we talking about in that passage? What is the deliverance in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem? Somebody, tell me. Salvation, but particularly who? Jesus. Now, uh, historical Jews will read this and they're looking for something tangible to happen in Jerusalem, but it doesn't fit. And let me tell you how we know. We prove Scripture with Scripture. Uh, you go to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, and God has poured out His Spirit and His power upon His people. After Jesus was here, He's made a way for salvation. He's done what nobody could ever do. He's ascended to heaven. And these people waited until they were endued with power from on high. And when that happened, they were criticized and ridiculed and said, man, you guys are crazy. And Peter got up and preached and he said, No, this that you're seeing is what Joel prophesied and it's being fulfilled. This is how we know this prophecy is about Jesus Christ. Now, are there other implications? Is it talking about natural Jerusalem? In some respects, yes. Is it talking about a time then in the time of Joel? Possibly. Many of these prophecies of old are, are dual or triple prophecies. And just about everything in the Old Testament is talking not just about a historical event, but more importantly, about Jesus the Messiah to come. So, when the prophet writes, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. How is he going to do that? There, there may be some times that that happened in the history of the Jews. But listen to this verse 27 and tell me if you think this is a historical event that's over with. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I'm the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. Has the nation of Israel been ashamed in recent years? And politically. I mean, half of what we hear about in the news is about how somebody's not supporting Israel that should or somebody is supporting them or they've got to get their borders back or this or that. It's all about their national identity being threatened. 
For my whole life, that's what's been on. This scripture has not been fulfilled in national Israel, and in my opinion, it never will be. Because it's been fulfilled in spiritual Israel. Peter told us the prophecy was fulfilled that day and we witnessed it. And we're reading about it in retrospect a couple thousand years later. Now, Joel is at a time that is somewhere around seven or 800 years before Christ. And I want you to think about this for the timeline of God. He says, uh, you know, a year, it's like a thousand years to me. I'm paraphrasing. But what is time to God? What is time to someone who is timeless? What is time to somebody who invented time? What if the purpose of your life is to waste most of it in comparative vanity? It feels that way. Just so you can understand the sustaining grace of God. What if you're never supposed to do anything important by the world's standards? So you go around all the time making yourself miserable like I preached a few weeks ago, 10 steps to have a miserable life. Why? Because I was doing all of them. And I I still have been and I haven't known how to break it. Let me ask you this. Some of you who are a little older, some of you have a lot of regret. There are people... I've come across person after person after person who circumstances force them to have a divorce and they say, I don't even believe in divorce and they're still beating themselves up about it. That's just one example. Some of you have have lost a bunch of money. Some of you have lost family members. Some of you, there's such mistakes that you feel you can never overcome. How can you make up for lost time? I want you to think about that for a minute. What are you going to do to make up for lost time? Make yourself crazy trying to make up for it. Let's go to the beginning of Joel. You're, you'll see what God is talking about. <clears throat> and what I started to say about the timeline of God, these people had to wait about 800 years, and we had to wait for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Chapter 1 of Joel. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you old men, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your father? Tell you your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. This is a perpetual prophecy. And here's what he says. That which the palmer worm has left, the locust has eaten. That which the locust has left, the canker worm has eaten. And that which the canker worm has left, the caterpillar has eaten. Now, I don't want us to take the time today to get into the allegories of all the different types of worms. What you need to know about worms is they eat stuff up. They destroy. Get some worms in a fruit tree and see what happens. They destroy it from the inside out and it's totally gone. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it's shut off from your mouth. For a nation has come upon your land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and that, that hath teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. That means torn the bark off. A tree can't survive like that. He's made it completely bare. He's cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. 
The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord, the priest, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted, the land mourns, the corn or the grain is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languishes. Be you ashamed, O you husbandmen, how you vine dressers for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Howl, you ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. For the meat offering, the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify you a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. He goes on and explains that this consuming power that's going to come from the north, locusts that look like horses and have teeth like lions, do you think we're talking about bugs and worms? It's something more. Locusts that look like horses, teeth of lions, are going to come from the north and they're going to destroy not just the land, but the very hope of God's people. He says it'll be so apparent that in front of them, before they get there, the land will look like the Garden of Eden and behind is just completely desolate. In the second chapter... 11th verse, I'll start there. I wish I could read it all, but I I won't for time. You read it later. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, says the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments." And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repents him of evil. Who knows if he will return and repent or relent from his plans and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. This is a trumpet of warning. God is telling Joel to tell the people, to tell their children, to tell their children, to tell their children about a great impending destruction. Now, I will readily admit, I don't know what all that is referring to. I don't know the complete, uh, all-encompassingness of this passage. But I want to tell you what I believe at least part of it is referring to. We already know that the fulfillment of the latter part of chapter 2 of Joel, was fulfilled at Pentecost. We know that this prophecy is about Jesus because of Peter explaining that to us. And also we can see it if we read with spiritual eyes of discernment. There's a couple times that I just read that these people are concerned about the meat offering and the drink offering being cut off. They're concerned about their oil running out. And God tells them, I am going to send these different kinds of worms and these locusts and they're going to do this. That's scary. Even if we're just talking about a a natural pestilence, how are you going to survive if you have four layers of plague come through 
and not just eat the leaves of the trees, but strip the bark off, eat the roots, and destroy it completely. That kind of physical desolation. But here's what God says. First of all, He says He's the one bringing it, and then here in this passage, 25th verse, He says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. The canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, that, that these things were my great army which I have sent to you. You shall eat in plenty. You shall be satisfied. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed. The only thing that can be talking about is spiritual fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The only way. Every nation that's ever been on the earth have gone through times of despair and being ashamed. Every person has gone through times of plenty and times of um, famine, even economically. I asked you earlier, how can you make up for lost time? You don't have to. Even if God is the one wasting your time from your perspective... I want you to listen to me. Even if all your wasted time has been brought about by God, He will restore the years the locust has eaten. Now, I should clarify, I don't believe God really wastes our time, but we may feel like it. Another way this verse can be translated is, I will repay you. For the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, the locust swarm, my great army I sent among you. He says, I'll restore these years to you. Now, this prophecy probably is talking about a natural prophecy as well. And I want you to see this. God has created nature in such a way and rules of the universe in such a way that he is the Lord of the harvest. And he gave us, through his people Israel, an example that if you do what I say, I can command the land to supernaturally produce in years that I designate like it otherwise couldn't. You know, every seventh year they were to let their crops rest. And there was a year of jubilee every, if I remember right, 49th year. Everybody's debts were forgiven. Everything got to start over. What was the year of Jubilee? It was a picture of Jesus Christ and His Jubilee to come. That is the day of the Lord, the day of this uh, great forgiveness and resetting. Uh, Even Scripture says God won't always chide. He won't always be angry. Even if you believe, which I don't, but even if you believe all the problems in your life are brought on you by God because He's teaching you some lesson, Even if you believe that, God doesn't always behave that way. He relents and He gives you a break. But I I don't believe that. I think most of our suffering is self-imposed. But there is this picture in nature. When God says, I will restore to you the years. This is talking about the years that which would have otherwise been necessary in the ordinary course of nature for the land to recover from the ravages of the great army. How long does it take a tree to become fruit bearing? <laughs> I bought some trees that were three years old, planted them, and didn't get any fruit until the next year. 
And then the Japanese Beatles destroyed them. There's some pear trees in the same area. I think about this passage, just like a tree that's planted by rivers of water, I shall not be moved. These trees, I don't know how they got there, if they were planted or they're just naturally there, but they're right by the pond. They're the healthiest trees I ever saw. You don't put anything on them, and they make so many pears that they'll tear the branches if you don't uh, thin them out. Why? They're healthy. That's how we fight the enemy. We've got to be healthy. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way. Just like those trees. Now, you can come along and spray some poison on something, get rid of the bugs, but the tree still has the problem. And that is why God is telling these people, I mean, do you realize this kind of desolation if we're talking about something natural and suddenly it's just going to get better? It's not possible. Just like in that seventh year when they let the crops rest, God allowed the sixth year to produce such a bountiful harvest that they would have double. I, I want to read you some of that from Isaiah 61. I thought of this passage when we sang that song. I never heard it before about, Lord, give me a double portion. I guess they took it from Elisha, but... Listen to this, same idea. Isaiah 61. Now you know this is talking about Jesus as well when we read it because Jesus went into the temple and read this passage, sat down and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So we have no doubt this is what we're talking about. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This, it's not just the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the year of God's favor. This is the year of God's abundance. And Jesus Christ goes before the people, reads this passage, and He tells them basically, this is what you've been waiting for, for hundreds of years. I am He. I'm the one. To proclaim the year of God's blessing, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, listen to this, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of the righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste places, they shall raise up former desolations, they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations, and strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. The sons of the alien or the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory shall you boast yourselves. For your shame you shall have double. A double portion. 
And for your confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. Every lasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offering among their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth her bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring before all the nations." This prophecy of Jesus, what did anybody do to bring it about? The greatest plan and purpose of God in the history of the universe. Did anybody speed it up? Did they make the plan come to pass? Did they, I mean, Jesus arrived, not like a king, but like a little helpless human, because that's what he was. Born willingly, the man by whom are all things and for whom are all things became a weak human baby. Scripture tells us that Jesus, through his own weakness, learned to be what he was supposed to be. God used Jesus and continues, Jesus continues to himself restore the things that are lost. That's how he does it. God says, I'll restore to you your lost years. Haven't you witnessed in the lives of some people that God so powerfully comes upon them? And it's like there's this big gap in the middle of their life that they didn't serve God and they regret it, but God... It's almost like he puts it together and it was never there. There's such power and such purpose and such uh, understanding in people. God uses them. See, we have an idea. I want you to hear this too. The idea of God restoring years to you. The Hebrew word, and I don't know much about Hebrew, but this is just from uh, a lexicon. The word where he says, I will restore to you. It means to be safe, figuratively, to make completed, by implication, to be friendly, by extension, to reciprocate in various applications. It can mean to make amends. It can mean to bring apart uh, about the uh, end. It can mean to perfect or to make complete, to restore, to reward, to make peaceful. And so when God says, I will restore to you, He's not just talking about giving you some stuff you lost. He's talking about using all those years of the locusts and the swarms and the worms when you feel like your whole life is wasted. He's talking about using all of that to bring you into completion. That he might use you, you see. 
there's a song that I really like, and the, the words have just been going on over and over in my mind the last couple of days. It says, nothing is wasted. In the hands of the Redeemer, nothing's wasted. As we all feel like, if you live long enough, you'll feel like you have wasted years or wasted time. Older people who have tried to do a lot for the Lord. You know, I've talked to my younger preacher brothers about this, about how so many older preachers live life with such regret and and just, we work so hard for the Lord and have nothing to show for it. Seems like that's how they feel sometimes. But God can restore those wasted years, you see. We, I want to tell you this too, mankind has a system that we've learned of doing things. We train ourselves. Nature reinforces our jobs, reinforce it. If you want a certain harvest, it takes a certain amount of effort. It takes a certain uh, quality of the soil. It takes certain weather. It takes a certain amount of time. You see, but God doesn't see as man sees. You may think something takes years of labor, and God is just waiting for you to get to the point where he can use you. And then he'll restore all those wasted years. I believe with all my mind, and God is starting to make me believe it in my heart, that really nothing is wasted in him. No experience, no trial, even sin is not wasted with God. Do you understand? That's what Paul was teaching us, that God will work all things together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Oh, I'm not suggesting you should go out and sin on purpose, but every one of you can tell me of mistakes you've made that God used to help you. He could have taught you a different way and an easier way and a better way. But he's still gracious and good enough to use those, isn't he? It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. God doesn't see like we do. He doesn't think like we do. He can restore all of everything. God can command the land to supernaturally produce a greater harvest than otherwise possible. He can take the wealth of the wicked and give it to the righteous. I want to read you this from Joshua. Don't take the time to turn there. Just listen. Joshua 24, he went over Jordan, came into Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. He's reminding the people what God has done. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword, not with your bow, and I have given you a land for which you did not labor." Cities which you did not build, and you live in them. Of the vineyards and the olive yards you planted not, and yet you eat. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve you the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whom in their land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Joshua was reminding the people, listen, all of your benefits, everything that you're reaping, everything you're experiencing, I used somebody else to do it for you. How do you think they felt in the meantime? While those cities were being built, those crops were being planted, the vineyards were being tended to, I know how they felt. They were in the wilderness wandering around and their years were wasted with vanity. See, but nothing's wasted. 
all that time that those stupid Israelites, that's, that's how they were. I, I said that intentionally. How foolish. That they just had to wander around, but in the meantime, God is using the heathen to build a place for His people to dwell. See, God will accomplish His purpose. He will accomplish His desire. He will accomplish His plans. We'll have a better life if we get on board sooner than later. Now, he tells them, put away the gods of your fathers. We don't live so much in a polytheistic culture, but we can think about it this way. What do we learn from our fathers or from the generation before us? What do schools teach? What is everybody always saying? Well, just take financially. Get a 401k, put your money in the market, let it compound for 50 years, and you'll be able to be safe when you retire. Now, I'm skeptical, but even if it does work out, is that not a God we've learned from our fathers? I'm not telling you not to invest, not to save. That's not the point. But you see, what did I say earlier? Man has learned a system of doing things. If you want a certain harvest, it takes a certain amount of effort and years of labor. See, but we forget if we throw ourselves wholly and completely and depend on the truth and the mercy and the provision of God, He will restore the wasted years. He doesn't need compound interest to help you. You understand that? The year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah tells us, as I read, God will give beauty for ashes. You might feel sometimes, that's how I've been feeling, for no apparent reason, except that that's what the enemy can do, that all your life is ashes and pointless and a waste. Now, Some of you who are older, I don't mind you laughing out loud for a 31-year-old to talk that way. It sounds silly, but that's how I felt. And it wouldn't go away, and I don't think it has gone away yet. It's still there. It doesn't matter what, what I believe in my mind. There's this, this, see, again, maybe I need this message more than anybody else. That's okay. David, in his 23rd Psalm, that's so beautiful about the restoration provision of God. He says, you have set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Unfortunately, modern religion, Christianity, Western Christianity in particular, teaches us to believe that God's goal is to take our enemies away. To take away difficulty, to take away problems, to take away trouble, to take away pain. That's not scriptural. David says, you've prepared a table before me in the midst of my enemies. As long as you're in this life, enemies are going to surround you. Enemies of your own thoughts, your own mind, your own physical infirmities, your own weakness. Enemies from the outside. Enemies that are demonic. Enemies that are human and used by the enemy and they don't realize it. Financial enemies, economic enemies, dietary enemies. You are environmental toxins. I mean, all of these enemies constantly bombard us and keep us from functioning at the capacity that we need to. And David says, he doesn't say, you took me out of the wilderness with my enemies. He said, you put a table right there in the middle of them. 
Paul said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in therewith to be content. You know contentment's something you have to learn? I'm not very good at it. it, it it's, it's hand in hand with patience. And I don't say that to excuse myself. If you're more patient and content, you're probably happier than I am usually. It's tough. And Paul says, I have to learn it. How did he learn how to be able to sit in prison for years and write letters and talk to people who came to his window or be under house arrest? How did he learn how to make it through the things that he made? He went through them. That's how he learned. How did David learn to kill Goliath? Killed a lion and a bear. <laughs> you think God's going to prepare you to do something big like that without giving you some big things to prepare you? You can't be prepared to kill a Goliath without facing some lions and some bears. And yet the silly religion we have says, come, feel good all the time, health, wealth, and prosperity, never have any problems, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a prosperity and a future. They never talk about the bad parts. This word, learned, that's exactly what it means. Uh, Greek word is monthano, and it means uh, to learn, period. <laughs> I'll give you a few verses where it's used, though, because it, it helped me understand what it's talking about. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, you shall find rest for your souls. The best way to learn about what Jesus is like is carry the yoke that he made for you. And you start to understand how tender-hearted he is, how gentle he is, how forgiving he is. That's how you learn about him. Oh, you don't learn about him sitting in a library with a book. Sometimes that's necessary and sometimes it can help, but you learn about him through life, through pain, through problems, through distractions, through turmoil, through blessing, through joy, through abundance. You learn what Jesus is like. Philippians 4.9, just before the verse I, I read, Paul is writing, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard, and seen in me, do those things, and the peace of God will be with you. So Paul said, I've taught you, you've learned how to serve God. And let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, we've learned the way to serve God. It's very simple. And because it's so simple, we're always adding extra things to it. God has given us, now I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but this is what my heart feels. God has given us a congregation here, an assembly, an ecclesia, that is a safe haven. It is a, this is a place of restoration. God said, I'll restore to you those lost years. This is a place that, that I come and I think you come and we, we're, we feel strengthened and we feel better and we feel filled. And we have a tendency, I do and I think maybe some of you do, to take this thing God has given us that we've learned and, and has been right, and we need to add a bunch of stuff to it because it's not what we think it should be. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for laborers. I'm not saying don't look where we should be or pray for direction. Don't, don't, don't. I didn't say that. But you want to make yourself miserable and on the verge of insanity? 
Try that. Try to make God's purpose come about before he designs. I mentioned this one earlier, but same same Greek word. I want to read again. Hebrews 5.8. Though Jesus was a son, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus, at the end of his life, understood the nature, the character, and the purpose of his Father in heaven better than he did when he started out. That we have to understand that. Now, we can't reconcile in our minds what it means to be God and still be able to learn. But Jesus learned what human suffering was like as well. He experienced it. God the Father in heaven has never experienced firsthand human suffering. Now, his mind may be big enough that he can completely know what it's like anyway. I don't know, that is above my thoughts, but I can tell you this, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, the Savior, experienced human suffering. He felt it, and he learned what it was like, and that knowledge helped him serve God better. The psalmist says, I love this, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. How much would you learn about God's grace and mercy and provision if you're just dependent on yourself all the time? You don't learn much about his character in those times. Jeremiah, when he wrote about the lamentations and, and, and the punishment and the pain and the lost years, He said, God does not afflict willingly or grieve the children of men. In other words, God doesn't get any pleasure out of this. It's just part of life. David wrote this as well. I love it. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. I will not fear what men may do to me. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, you may believe that in your mind, but I've experienced that lately in a way that I didn't understand, and I thank God for it. I want to tell you this, too, before I close. There are many examples in Scripture of people who feel like they're wasting years. The only one I can think of that really philosophically and introspectively examined all those wasted years was Solomon. And he looked back on all of it and said, it's all vanity. But his realization, the Ecclesiastes is, is a, it's a practical book. It's a book about the physical realm that we live in. When he says, just have mirth and, and, and uh, youthful joy because that's what all you're going to get out of life, that's a carnal statement. You have to realize that. And so Solomon in writing that is looking back as somebody who tried naturally to experience all these things and he understood better than any person will ever understand the vanity of success. That's part of what's been wrong with, with me. Not that I've arrived, but 
Satan can use your very strengths against you. And if you're like me and you're very driven and you're very focused and you're goal-oriented and you've accomplished almost all your goals and you expected it to make you feel good, and then it doesn't, and you don't even realize that's what you planned on happening. I got to the point, and this message is not about me, but I don't know how to preach except to preach from my heart. I don't know how to divorce myself from the message. And so maybe this will help somebody. I got to the point where I did not even enjoy anything, my surroundings. And I got some help from a, uh, I'll call her a therapist, who she said, she said, one way you'll know that this worked is you'll be able to enjoy your surroundings again. Now, I didn't tell her that. I couldn't. I, I, she, I don't know how she knew. And so, on my way home from work, I pulled over, and there were these wispy gray clouds that were the neatest cloud formation, and I got out of my car without realizing what I was doing and just sat there and looked at them. And then I noticed this big old amused smile like a little kid about how amazing it was. And then I remembered what she told me. You'll know this worked when you start enjoying your surroundings again. And I realized, and I went on home and then I pulled off by a lake and just sat on a dock and watched the water and the lights on it. One of my favorite things about life and the way I'm wired, me, is this childlike amusement with the world. And I got to where I couldn't even enjoy anything. I didn't even realize things like that. I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do. I tried praying, I tried all these. But you know, sometimes prayer can be your own way of trying to be strong. I'm going to go fix it on my own with prayer. Sometimes God puts people in your life to help you. Amen. So, God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, or the months or the weeks. There's no wasted time. And I'm learning that in a way that I couldn't know academically. I couldn't know from reading the Bible. I had to experience it. I don't know the hearts of you all. I don't know if some of you have been experiencing similar things. Uh, But if you have, it sounds trite, but it's true. Only God can help you. But he'll give you people to help too. (coughs) One more thing from Scripture and then I'm finished. Simeon. Spent his whole life waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was a righteous man. He served the Lord. And he had read the prophets. And he had read prophecies like the one I read today about God restoring the wasted years and uh, the old men seeing visions and, and the young men dreaming dreams and the Spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh, and God's people never being ashamed again. He had read all these prophecies, and he knew he was waiting to see the Messiah. He wasn't waiting for the restoration of a natural city on this earth. 
So he waited and he waited and he waited. And comparatively, you might say he wasted his whole life. But then, here comes baby Jesus. And he picks him up in his arms. And he said, Lord, now you can let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, Holy One of Israel. You see, suddenly, all those years of his life were no longer wasted. God restored. So, maybe in your lives, you might feel like some of it's wasted. You might feel like you've been waiting a whole long time for God to do something. I, I, I like what Brother Hackett has sometime told me that, you know, sometimes, he said, sometimes I expect God to do more. I'm frustrated he hasn't. There's an example of God using your strength against you. You have so much faith you get mad at God. <laughs> he didn't do it. <laughs> I felt that too. Where my heart is today, brothers and sisters, whatever you get out of this from the Holy Spirit is what I pray for, but what God put in my heart is He'll restore. And everything that feels wasted, in that moment of restoration from God, you realize that all of it was necessary. I don't know how to conclude, uh, but I'll say this, because I, I, I feel it'd be necessary if someone needs to seek the Lord, if you aren't complete, if you're lost, if you're broken, you're, you're just not what you know that you should be. You can seek Him. You can have peace. You can have joy. You know, it's beautiful how God restores things. I uh, met a girl recently who grew up in eight generations of Mormonism and abuse. And she said as a young child, even as an eight-year-old, she would read the scriptures and realize the doctrinal contradictions. And she said, I look back on my life and I see God's thumbprints all over it. She went to a Baptist church when she was 18 and got away from her parents, went there, and she told about crying out to God and begging Him to deliver her and help her and she said, uh, in short, I got saved. <laughs> and then went back home. Her mom threatened her with a knife. <laughs> she had to call the child services and all that. I mean, crazy. Craziness. And yet all those years of the locust, the worms and the pain, the turmoil. See, God restored it. And he can do that. He does that in our lives. I mean, you look back on your life. And it's full of the thumbprints of God, the fingerprints of God. So I'll close with saying nothing is wasted in God's hands.